Next, I would like to invite our keynote speaker, uh, Professor Katja Franco, uh, to give her talk. Uh, Professor Franco is, is Professor of Criminology at the Department of Criminology and the Sociology of Law at the University of Oslo. Uh, she's been carrying out some really interesting work uh, on globalization, migration, and, and crew migration. Um, and she's also, as I mentioned, the upcoming chair of the Heoni Advisory Board. Please, you have the floor. Thank you very much, um, both for the invitation and for the introduction. And first of all, congratulations to Heoni. 40 years, uh, 40 years is a really, really uh, big number. Um, and um, I think, I was thinking quite a lot about sort of what would be the appropriate topic for today. Uh, and I realized that perhaps this is quite ambitious for 20 minutes. <laughs> so I think I'll just try to be sort of very, uh, very concrete in my talk, but hopefully uh, give some thought for the discussions that we can also then have after the lunch. And um, I will start with one of the basic rights that we have which is the right to life. It is sort of a, a cornerstone and it entails not only that individuals and states cannot take other humans' li lives, but also it entails an obligation on states to protect human life. Now, at the same time, we live in a world where human vulnerability, uh, corporeal vulnerability life is very unequally protected, which means that states are in a way uh, able to obey this kind of right in very different terms. And I think a very good image of this is uh, actually uh, the, uh, the image produced by the UNODC's uh, homicide statistics, which shows how different, uh, what different rates of homicides we have globally. And that we basically live in a world where security is a public good, as uh, Neil Walker and Ian Loder put it, for only a very few citizens of very few states, um, whereas others live in a deeply insecure societies. Uh, so the, the report points out that in the past quarter century, an estimated 11.8 uh, million people worldwide have lost their lives uh, as, a, as a result of in, uh, intentional homicide, making it a more important cause of violent death than war. And actually, if I were to give another talk or a longer talk, that, that would be a, a, one important aspect to discuss, that numbers, homicide numbers in a number of especially Latin American countries do meet uh, sort of conventional definitions of, uh, of civil warfare. In 2017, a total of 20 countries had a homicide rate above 20%, uh, 20 per 100,000 population. Um, so with a combined population of 707 million or 9% of the global total, those 20 countries accounted for 49% of global homicides. And this is what I would call uh, very much the, the, the sort of the gist of the global security inequality that we have in the world today. Now, what is also interesting is that the, the report points out that excluding all the sub-regions of Africa for which complete data are not available, and I think that is an important point, Central America and South America at 25.9 and 24.2 per 100,000 population, respectively, were the sub-regions with the highest average homicide rate in 2017, 
followed by the Caribbean and so on. By contrast, the subregions with the lowest levels of homicide at around one victim per 100,000 population were Southern, Western, Northern Europe, East Asia, and Oceania. So these are, I think, the, the sort of the contours, the broad brushes of, of what I would term the global security inequality when it comes to at least the protection of life, when it comes to, uh, uh, to, to, to crime. Now, what I think is also important here is the, the, the first sentence saying, excluding all the subregions of Africa for which complete data are not available. And what I would like to talk about today is not only the inequality that we have in terms of the global protection of life, but also the inequality in terms of what kind of knowledge we have about uh, 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 human security and about the, uh, the global protection of life, with, which I think is also very important. Because security, because inequality is as uh, one of the central criminological perspective. And uh, US criminologist Karen Keimer, she gave in 2018 a presidential address to the Europe, uh, American Society of Criminology, where she took out inequality as one important criminological perspective and pointed out that today in the US, with the greater availability of survey data uh, and so on, greater computing power, we have greatest than ever possibilities uh, of uh, uh, measuring and finding out about inequality. Now, on the other hand, we can contrast this picture about knowledge from the US with the, uh, with the extract for, uh, from the report uh, saying that although the ODC global homicide statistic data set covers 202 countries and territories and 96% uh, of the world population, data coverage is below average in Africa. Some countries have neither reliable criminal justice data on homicide nor accurate mortality statistics that can be used as an alternative. And that, I think, is a very good image of also of the knowledge inequality that underpins the security inequality that we see in the world today. And it is this dimension, the global north and global south, that I would like to go a bit further into today. Um, so it was mentioned that Hauni, in a way, started a, as a sort of as a way of bridging the east-west divide. But I think this sort of bridging of north-south divide is also a very, very important aspect. As Karen Heimer pointed out in her talk, the study of inequalities lies at the heart of criminology as a discipline. Uh, and especially within, uh, within uh, both US and European context, this has often then also been framed within the framework of intersectionality, which has been a very sort of important framework for then also capturing the inequality pertaining to women, especially issues of law and domestic violence have been very much covered within this perspective. Uh, uh, people, people of color, uh, class issues and so on, and the intersections of these perspectives how do gender, race, class intersect and create inequalities, not only in terms of victimhood, but also in terms of uh, uh, criminal justice interventions, criminal justice responses, and so on. However, much of the perspectives that the scholarship that we have on inequality and on intersectionality today is very much domestic and national in its uh, outlook. So it, this is not a global perspective. 
And what I would like to, 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 to talk about today is actually how could we think about this inequality um, in a global perspective, what would that entail? Because I think it does not only entail collection of data on a global level, but also to sort of that we should be able to see some blind spots that come from a national focus and the focus on some populations that in a way are then not captured uh, by it. In the US concept, the inter intersectionality perspective has been very much, for example, employed to to um, in recent years also to to capture the the racial disparities the black lives matter movement that put this very much on the political agenda and i would like to sort of to 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 move that and look at whether that fits actually if when we look at europe as we mentioned europe is one of the safest uh, uh, continents uh, in the world now at the same time u.s scholars have pointed out to the migrant crisis and the loss of life in the Mediterranean as one aspect of Black Lives Matter. Now, a question is, is this the case? Would this be a, a suitable or appropriate way of framing the issue? There is no doubt that the, 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 the border uh, in the Mediterranean is the most fatal border in the world. And uh, uh, IOM, which is uh, currently collecting the data with their, uh, uh, with their missing migrants projects, documented, for example, that in 2021, more than 3,400 deaths on migration routes to and within Europe uh, were recorded, the highest number of recorded fatalities in any year since 2016. Now, again, a question of availability of data arises. Beyond this available data, they say, are likely an undercount of the true death toll, as disappearances uh, at sea are highly likely to go undocumented, particularly with many cases of invisible shipwrecks, in which entire boats go missing without a trace. For example, the NGO Commando Fronteras estimated that more than 90% of fatalities on the sea route to the Canary Islands were people whose remains were never recovered, including at least 83 vessels who disappeared with no survivors in 2021. And I think this is also a very good image of the sort of the unequal distribution of vulnerability, corporeal vulnerability, which is very much within the European, if not territorial waters, but very much on the edge uh, of the European territory. What I think this report also points to is who is collecting this knowledge. And I think that is a very important issue. They point to the NGOs, and of course we have IOM as an organization that has in recent years taken on this task of counting migrant fatalities. As Natalia mentioned in my previous work, I have worked on issues of migration, especially on the, uh, on the European Border Control Agency Frontex, uh, together with also with my colleague Helene Gund, who's uh, at the University of Oslo. It has been really interesting to, to, to read, for example, Frontex reports because their border deaths are not mentioned, um, including the recent risk analysis report for 2021, where they point out increasingly sophisticated uh, ways of measuring various types of uh, incidents, occurrences, crimes connected to, to European borders. Um, for example, illegal stays, detention of facilitators, fraudulent documents, uh, returns, uh, and so on. Uh, but they do not 
count. Not only they did not count migrant fatalities, they also do not mention them at all in the report. Um, and when we did our research, um, did interviews with Frontex officers in, uh, for about eight years ago, um, many acknowledged that there was a possibility Frontex has or was developing at the time Eurosur surveillance system, which gives greater possibilities of sort of also recording fatalities. At the same time, this has not been taken on as a task for European border authorities, for European, what is essentially becoming a European external border police force. Um, and the question is, wh why not? Why this selective production of knowledge about uh, migrant vulnerability? And would this way of thinking and framing vulnerability be possible if we were talking about European citizens? Um, because it is a way of seeing migrants very much from a state security perspective rather than a human security perspective. And in a way, it is somewhat, somewhat incongruous with increasing focus on vulnerability also from a, from a juridical perspective within the EU asylum law. And uh, as Peter Andreas in Greenhill point out, if something in practical terms, political terms, if something is not measured, it does not exist. If, it's not, if it is not counted, it does not count. If there are no data, an issue or problem will not be recognized, defined, prioritized, put on the agenda and debated. Now we could say that we have data produced by IOM at the same time as this counting of data is completely outsourced outside of the European institutions. Um, and in that way also reflected in the fact that the European institutions such as Frontex, for example, do not take a responsibility in terms of prevention of life for the lives that are being uh, lost at sea. So it does not become incorporated in, for example, risk analysis if we do, do this and this kind of strategy, what kind of impact does it have on migrant mortality? the focus is very much on, uh, on crime and crime-related issues. And that, I think, is actually quite, quite, an, uh, quite an important perspective that sort of needs to, uh, uh, we, we should put f uh, uh, further attention to. And also a question, who produces knowledge is very important, I think, and in a way some, somewhat neglected issue that it, it matters whether it is NGOs, whether, whether it is uh, state institutions or whether it is other actors. Because what we are seeing in the Mediterranean border is a growing presence of humanitarian actors, which are private actors, also when it comes to the saving of lives that both state authorities like Italian authorities, but also Frontex had in a way somewhat retreated from a sort of active stance towards saving of lives. Um, at the same time, some states have also employed criminalization to in a way dissuade certain humanitarian actors from saving lives and uh, fundamental rights agency has made several reports about the, the criminalization of humanitarian actors. Um, so a question is, in a way, would this type of thinking in terms of life and uh, uh, human vulnerability be possible if we were dealing with European citizens? 
Would it be possible to say that if we have roads that produce several thousand fatalities a year, that let's say state institutions wouldn't be actively collecting information about this and that the police or other institutions that are responsible for road safety would not be then acting according to this type of data? And I think here we have an example of security inequality, which is very much at the Europe's doorstep. And I wouldn't sort of simplify it to say that this is just a question of, uh, of black lives in the European context. I think what is important is that these people are not European citizens and the lack of citizenship on their behalf then has important consequences for the ways their lives are protected in the European sphere that in a way the protection of their life becomes a task for NGOs um, and accounting and documentation of their vulnerability is then outsourced to an organization such as IOM. So we have in a way in this sort of global security inequality new patterns of knowledge production uh, that I think are really interesting that, uh, and I think deserve uh, further attention. And the questions I think that can be asked here is, of course, paraphrasing Judith Butler, who in the aftermath, uh, 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 in, connected to the, the war in Iraq, asks which lives are grievable, um, uh, which lives are being counted, which lives are in a way deserving of attention. Uh, and the sa same thing can be asked, which lives matter in terms of uh, our uh, framing of, uh, of protection, which lives are seen as deserving of protection, but also are knowable in their loss and in their vulnerability. Uh, how much knowledge do states seek actively to, to, uh, 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 to collect about the lives that are not the lives of their own citizens? And in that way, I think uh, looking at intersectionality perspective and inequality in a global framework also entails, in a way, uh, a view of how important citizenship is as a structuring force for inequality, that states usually protect their own citizens or seek to protect, but there are great varieties between states globally. And uh, in that way, that, that very much shapes uh, this geopolitical distribution of corporeal vulnerability. So what kind of state you live in and what state you are a citizen of then becomes a vital question uh, uh, determining uh, in a way the, the, the level of uh, uh, security protection. Uh, and I think there is a gap in sort of existing uh, empirical but also theoretical knowledge that we have on extremely violent societies that paradoxically much of criminological research is produced and much of the data we have is collected in societies that are the safest in the world. Um, at the same time as a society that are extremely unsafe, we lack even basic data about human, uh, human vulnerability. And also then, of course, uh, differentiated level of rights and differentiated value of life within, within this emerging global order. You could say that we have a certain hierarchy of citizenship that then I think also produces a certain hierarchy of victimhood, uh, which in a way is the, its underside and that the victimhood in societies with, which are with weak states are much less documented and of course much more difficult to access justice, even the basic rights such as the right of life, for example.
I think uh, actually that uh, uh, my time is uh, pretty, mu pretty much up, uh, so there have been uh, more questions than answers in, in this talk, but hopefully it will give us something to talk about uh, during our lunch discussion. So thank you very much again for inviting me. Um, uh, thank you.